Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Pitch Masters with me, your host, Danny Fontaine. In February 2001, 17 anarchists got together in a ski lodge in Utah. They had no fixed agenda, but they spent two days in lively conversation, resulting in what we now know as the Agile Manifesto. They had no idea how big this would become and how their ideas would change the world. And one of those 17 people was Jim Highsmith. And on this episode, Jim tells me the story of the birth of Agile. So grab a drink, sit back and relax. This is Pitchmasters. Jim Highsmith, my absolute honour to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. We've got a lot to talk about. Um, you are world-renowned in many circles, but before I say too much, how would you introduce, how would you pitch yourself to people who perhaps haven't heard of you before? Well, thank you, Danny. I appreciate uh, uh, the opportunity to kind of talk. Um, I guess today I could sort of describe myself as, as an agile pioneer. I've been doing it for 30 some years now. And what I've grown into over that period of time is more of a storyteller. So I also would say that I'm somewhat of a storyteller um, because I found that's a much better way to communicate with people than, uh, for example, I used to have bullet points on a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> I took all of those out years right. ago. <laughs> well, you are you're a rare breed then, because I still see bullet points on PowerPoint slides every single day. So, so that's wonderful. So, so let's get into a bit about this agile pioneer thing that you just mentioned. You, um, you have a pretty amazing story, but perhaps before we go there, th there's plenty of people who I meet frequently who who either don't understand or misunderstand agile. I'm quite interested to know how you actually explained in layman's terms, what is agile? I think at the core, it's the ability to respond to change and to generate change. And I think it's both of those things, because I think if you're very agile, you can actually create change for your in your marketplace. Uh, so it's not only responding to change, but it's also creating change. So, for example, I would look at, at companies like like Apple. They generate change, uh, and they can also respond to marketplace changes. So, so it's both of those things. It's both a um, forward-looking generation of change for other people, and it's a response to change. And more than that, it's based on a set of 12 principles. And many people know those principles, and we might talk about some of them in particular. But you, why I'm so excited to talk to you is that you are one of the people who wrote the Agile Manifesto itself. And what I'd really like to start with is telling me more about that story. What? How, how did you even get to that lodge in 2001? What happened before that? <laughs> well, I won't go back into the ancient history, but I'll go back to like 1970, 1997. And I met Martin Fowler in New Zealand. We've interacted quite a bit over the years. It seems to be always somewhere outside of the U.S. It's either London or Australia or someplace else. Um, 
And, and we got to know each other a little bit. And then he introduced me to Kent Beck. At least I think he introduced me to Kent Beck. As I, when, I, when I was talking to Martin about our memories, uh, we figured out that, that that was the only way it could have happened. And, and Kent and I exchanged manuscripts before my adaptive software development was published and before his Extreme Programming Explained was, was published. And that ended up with Kent inviting me uh, to participate in an XP planning session in Oregon uh, about a year and a half before the Agile Manifesto. And this was basically a group of XP people who had gotten together and Kent sort of invited me as an outsider, but another one of the so-called light methodologists. Um, and so that meeting led, which uh, Bob Martin attended, Uncle Bob. Uh, yeah. He, he attended that particular meeting and got the ball rolling with an email the next year that started the uh, Snowbird meeting. And so he invited a bunch of people and asked us, who, do we have other people that we knew of that might be invited and came up with this group of 17 people. There was some back and forth about the um, location for a while and we decided on Snowbird. And so Alistair Coburn and I sort of facilitated the logistics of going to Snowbird for this particular meeting. So that's how it really got started. And the I think the interesting thing about the meeting is, I mean, I've had a nearly 60-year career. I've been in a lot of meetings. And this was by, <laughs> by far the most interesting and effective meeting that I, that I attended in the 60 years. It was just sort of magical what happened because there was no there was no plan there was no agenda we didn't have anything in mind when we started we just wanted to get together and see what we could do as a, as a group of light methodologists and so what came out of that uh we we didn't know what would happen we get we get blamed for a whole lot of things these days we <laughs> You know, this was a two-day meeting, and in the two-day meeting, we wrote the value statements. And then after that, in about three months or so, we wrote the principles online back and forth. So we got a lot more accomplished in two days than uh, you might imagine. Yeah. So so for those people who don't know, Snowbird is the name of the ski resort, uh, which is in Utah. Right. So when you were kind of pulling up to the ski resort, did you have any idea in your mind how significant this was going to be did, did you have even an inkling i think as the meeting wore on i thought we had something yeah but i never would have imagined it would have persisted 20 plus years yeah or or be a worldwide movement and so that really surprised me and i think it surprised everybody that was there so in the meeting you you said you wrote these four value statements. How? Tell me more about how they even came about from 17 people all chiming in over two days. And you also have to realize that these were not only 17 people, but these were 17 type A's. <laughs> right. These are red people. <laughs> yeah. And all of whom were teachers or facilitators. And right. so there was at least one point in, in the meeting where somebody was facilitating and somebody else 
didn't agree with his facilitation, what he was doing at the time. And so he had to make this rule really quickly that whoever was facilitating got to set the rules for right, what right. they were doing. Um, and and the first thing we did was was go around the room and everybody sort of talked about their particular brand of light methodology and what they were doing and how that kind of fit together. And as we went around the room, it was clear that there was a lot of commonality, much more commonality than difference. And, and that was an important piece. Then we started thinking about, okay, how are we going to document what had happened? And that's when we started coming up with what was important. And I don't know exactly who came up with the format for the value statements, but it was a very important format. And so that was developed kind of the second and third day was refining that. We knew we wanted to go on to some principles, but we knew we didn't have time to, to do that. So we just stopped at the value statements at that point in time. And I think that's really the thing that was the most important piece of it. Are there any words in those value statements that you look back on and you think, I said that word or, or that phrase? No. <laughs> and, and and that has been a that has been a something that the, the authors have tried hard to do over the years. Yeah. Is we have not attributed any particular word, phrase, principle to a specific person. It was a collaborative effort. Right. And we've tried to held to that over the years. So even even people who think they may have injected a name or a value first doesn't claim it. And just because I'm curious and nosy, was there anyone there who you thought, well, they hardly said anything at all? They shouldn't be credited as one of the 17. <laughs> well, that actually brings up a, a story that Alistair Coburn t talked about when I, when I interviewed him for the book. And he and Ron Jeffries were talking one day, and it was one of the guys that had been invited, Steve Miller. And Steve introduced himself as a spy. <laughs> right. As a spy for traditional methods. And so they got to talking, the three of them got to talking one day. And Alistair and, and Ron didn't really understand why Steve had been in, invited. He wasn't really an agile methodologist. And so they were talking to him about what his gig was. And so he got talked about diagrams and, and generating code from diagrams and going through this, this uh, scenario. And Alistair said he and Ron didn't believe he could do it and, and didn't really understand the process. And so there was potential for disagreement there. Mm. And then, then Ron or, or, or Alistair mentioned they, they asked Steve, they said, the problem with what we see with what you're doing is it will mean we'll have to maintain the code in two different places. We'll have to maintain the code and we'll have to maintain the diagrams. And that has a chance of getting out of, out of sync. And Steve said, no, no. I mean, to generate the code from the diagrams and that, so that's code, the diagram mm. from the source code. And Alistair and Ron said, oh, well, we would agree with that if you only have to maintain it one place. 
we don't think you can do it. But the right. intent, the intent is the same as our intent. So through that discussion and collaboration, they arrived at agreement where there had been disagreement in the beginning. And I think the meeting was full of those kinds of sessions where people listened as well as talked, which, like I say, was pretty unusual for that group of people. So a, a broader question, when we pitch, we, we often know that we need to listen to the client more, but we often uh, we forget that and we start to talk over the client. And often the client wants to collaborate, but they forget that too and they talk over us. Do you have any advice for how to run the most productive collaborative sessions in general where there, there are a lot of strong voices in the room? Well, one of the things that's really important is to have a good facilitator. Mm. And I think that's a, that's a big piece of it. Uh, there was a period of time when I taught more facilitation classes than agile classes. Mm. And, and so I think giving everybody, you know, ways that get everybody involved in the process. I was facilitating a meeting at a major airline one time. This was years ago. And there were like 18 people in the room and we came to a decision on some particular thing and the vote was 17 to one. Right. And so I asked the guy who was the one, I said, why did you vote against this decision? And he was one of the quiet people in the audience. He hadn't really said very much and he explained why he had voted against it. And we rapidly found out he was the only person in the room that really knew what he was talking about. Right. And it reversed the, reversed the decision. And so those are the kinds of things that, that a good facilitator can bring to play in that kind of environment. I think the other thing, too, is that the Agile Manifesto meeting was, ran, was run as an open source or, or open meeting which meant we didn't really come in with an agenda. We made the agenda up at mm. the time and we changed that as we went forward. I think what happens sometimes when you have too much of a fixed agenda is you spend too much time on minor areas issues. Yeah. And, but, and the really important stuff gets left behind. And yeah. for, for example, the Agile Alliance board still uses that model in, in board meetings. Right. And so I think... Part of part of where we have to go with this agile stuff is have some of these practices that are used at management levels as well as project levels. So back to Snowbird before we move into the wider world. Do you have any one memory that really stands out to you from those two days? I'm not sure there's any one particular moment. I, th I think when we started writing the manifesto value statements and somebody mm. came up with the idea of this over that right i think that was a really key point and and the word over has been misinterpreted many many times by a lot of people <laughs> right. it's you know individuals and interactions over process and tools has become in individuals and interactions instead of processes and tools right you know and and how how people have misinterpreted over I don't really understand, but they have. And quite frankly, some people have have encouraged that through some what kind of extreme views 
So, for example, uh, no documentation. Well, that's not what it says. <laughs> it, says it says documentation is fine as a support for collaboration. Yes. But the one, the one thing that that word over does is it gives you a basis on which to make decisions. Right. Whereas if I just say I'm in favor of this and I'm in favor of this and in favor of this, it doesn't tell you what the contrast is so that I can make a decision about it. And so I've seen some some recent methodology uh, experiments or a methodology uh, that people have come up with, and they just list out a bunch of the things they're in favor of. And, right. and that's fine, but it doesn't give you a way to make a decision. Correct. The, the other thing that I think was important, and we can get into the details of this a little later, is that the manifesto, at the value statements as written, were really inspirational to people. Mm. And I think people, I think a lot of people forget that. Uh, it really changed the mindset of a lot of different people. And they were very passionate about it in the beginning. And I think we may have lost some of that. Yeah, well, I can certainly agree with that firsthand. And the way I was introduced to Agile was in a clunky way. I didn't really know what it was. I just joined a company who were using it. And I immediately started working in Scrum. And and it's very easy to mix all of these things together. And when I finally realized that Agile is really about this set of guiding principles that allow you to make these decisions, then it becomes all of a sudden incredibly clear and, like you say, inspirational because you think, yes, that is how I want to work, even right. regardless of what the details of that working actually is. And, yeah, to your point, I still hear today people saying, Agile, doesn't that just mean that you don't need a plan and you don't need to write anything down? <laughs> well, I, I uh, had to interject. There was a, a post on, on LinkedIn not too long ago that was talking about all these things like no documentation. And I thought, I, I'm thinking I wrote something about, can't we come up with any new complaints about Agile? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that one's 20 plus years old. <laughs> yeah. Bit of a broken record, that complaint. Yeah, exactly. So you wrote these four values. Were you aiming for four, or is that just how many you came up with in the in the two days? I think we were looking for a minimal set. Mm. I'm I'm not really. Anytime I see something that's been written that has more than about four or five bullet points on it, I go right on and read it past it. Right. I really think if you can't reduce it to three to five really important things, you haven't thought about it enough. And so I think that's one of the reasons that we only came up with four. And we left the rest of that to principles. But right. we really wanted the value statements to be very concise and not very many of them. So you left Snowbird. Not sure what was going to happen next, I assume. Uh, and it sounds like what happened next was quite a few months of email exchanges to get to these 12 principles. Did Same question. Was it, were, you, were you thinking of the 12 commandments? Were you trying to get to 12 <laughs> or is it just that's when everyone dried up? Uh, that's what we came up with. I, I don't think there was any uh, notion that there should be 10 or 12 or 8. Yeah. So how did you know when you were finished with the Agile Manifesto in its first form? Well, with the principles, we finally just said we got to get them published right. <laughs> because it's been long enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's been long enough, and and 
people were more apt to tweak them over email than they had been in person. Right. And so there was a there were a lot of tweakers in the group. Yeah. Who who and finally we said we got to get these things out. They're not perfect, but let's let's get them out there. And am I right in saying that a few of you started to publish this stuff? It wasn't sort of a, a single place where you published it. it. It started to proliferate throughout the world through all of you starting to talk about it. Is that right? That, that's right. Uh, Martin Fowler and I wrote an article on the 17 and it was on the front page of, of uh, Software Development Magazine, 17 art, uh, art anarchists. Uh, write a manifesto or something like that. So Martin and I wrote an article. Uh, Alistair Coburn and I wrote an article for IEEE Software. Several other people wrote articles that began to be published in national magazines. And and, and we started talking about it in conference, conferences. And, and, and at that point in time, there was probably more conference sort of talks that that promoted Agile then because there really wasn't a lot of social media at the time. However, there were two things that happened that were really important. One of which was that uh, Ward Cunningham, who originated the wiki, uh, kept a wiki going about XP and Agile and that gave people a a forum. The other thing that happened, and, and Ward was responsible for this too, when he posted the Agile Manifesto on a website. He also gave people a, an opportunity to sign it. Mm. And so if you go to the, that page, it starts in, in, in 2001 and goes to 2013 when they had to cut it off because there were too many spam entries right. in there. Yeah. But in that, period of, in that period of time, there were about 15,000 people who signed up and said, I support the Agile Manifesto in one way or another. And I think that was an important piece because it gave people a way to say, yes, I believe this too. I think it's a great direction. And and we just got hundreds and hundreds of signups kind of every day. And that was, I think, our social media of the day. Right. And did the messaging either get diluted or, or, or did it diverge ever because of the amount of you involved all going off to speak about it at conferences without always being in that singular group, if you like? Yeah, I mean, I think the differences, there, there were definitely different differences between the various uh, attendees at the meeting. And, and so that happened. And I, I always go back to Jerry Weinberg's statement, of raspberry jam, the further you spread it, the thinner it gets. Right. And so the, fur- the further you spread out any sort of thing that has a kind of a movement, the thinner the real application or knowledge or experience gets. And so you, you end up with some rather interesting forums that, ha- that have come out of that. And, and, and it's, it's a natural evolution. You, you, you've read, a lot of other people's opinions on agile on on the web. I'm sure. What, what's what are some of the craziest things you've heard about agile that you think? Well, that's 100 percent wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I think it's I think it's the 
the, the normal kinds of stuff, uh, you know, no documentation, you can't plan, you can't do uh, fixed, fixed anything. The, one of the funniest things I ran into, and this gives you an idea of the difference between some of the manifesto authors and what they were talking about. So I was in Germany. I was actually in Munich with a client and there was a meeting that was like 18 different software development managers from, from their different divisions sitting around. And I was talking to them about my views of agile project management. And these were second and third level managers. These were not, right. you know, project managers. These were several levels up. And so one of them was said, they said, uh, our scrum consultant says that we can't ask how much this is going to cost or how long it's going to take or what the feature set's going to be. What do you think of that? And I said, I think that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, yeah. manage, management has every um, reason and, and, and actually obligation to ask those kinds of questions because they have fiduciary responsibilities. And so you can't say, no, we can't give them that kind of information. And I asked him, I said, and what do your senior managers think of that kind of approach? And they sort of grin. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the senior managers didn't think much of it. But that's right. one of the um, outcomes that, that, that probably a lot of the manifesto signers would not have agreed with. But some of the other ones would have agreed with it because I yeah. think each one of those things, the agile approach was countering something that had gone before mm. that, that had been taken to extremes. Uh, Ed Jordan wrote a book in the 1990s called Death March Projects, mm. uh, which talked about all the projects that they had, that had really been death marches because the, the plans and the estimates were way off and, and yet they had people working really, really hard day after day after day to try to meet these plans that were unrealistic in the first place. And so the opposite of that is no plans. Right. And, right. And so we, some people went too far the other way. Yeah. I'm lucky enough to uh, have read your book already. It's uh, coming out next month and we'll, We'll get onto the specifics of that in a minute, but um, it did make me laugh when you talked about the waterfall approach and there's a magic triangle missing between all the stages, <laughs> which is how do you actually get between them? <laughs> yeah. I, I, and, I, and I think that that was one of the things that uh, people were trying to do with automation in the 1990s. They thought they could actually mm. bridge that gap between diagrams and code automatically. And it turned out to be a lot harder than they thought because it's not a cause and effect kind of thing. It's a different switch when you go from requirements documents to design. And therein lay the biggest fault, I think, with Waterfall was the fact that the communication between those phases was documentation. And the documentation was, was not enough. That, that the documentation was important, but what was most important was collaboration and explaining things to people. I, I once was with a company in uh, New Jersey and the architecture group, group had just delivered this fairly comprehensive corporate architecture report. 
And I asked the development staff, I said, what did you think of that? And they said, well, we really didn't understand it. We just tossed it away. <laughs> and then I went back to the architecture group and I said, how many meetings do you have lined up to explain this document to the development staff? And they said, oh, we don't have time to do that. <laughs> it's, it's obvious what's in the document. Right. And obviously it wasn't. It must be amazing for you, though, seeing how big it's grown and how widely accepted and implemented it's now become across the world. And, you know, it's still growing all the time, it seems. Talk to me about that a little bit. Well, it's, it's kind of daunting in a way to, uh, to, to realize the impact that it's had on software development and really on the world. And, and you think of, you know, this was actually generated by 17 techies. Right. And to think 17 techies got together and wrote something that kind of changed the world uh, is uh, it one, one's both, one area is pretty flattering, but in another it's like, really? We, we actually did that. <laughs> and, and one of the things that I thought it is particularly ironic is that the first value in the Agile Manifesto is about people and their interactions, people and teams and their interactions and how they collaborated. And so you had 17 techies that came up with a people-oriented value. Yeah. And I think that's kind of ironic. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> you wouldn't have predicted that. No. Did you think about either as on your own or, or as a group, how you would pitch Agile to the world and how you would almost market it to grow it? Or was it completely organic and, and I guess, sort of snowballed all over the place? I think it was more organic in that each of the manifestos signatories sort of went off and did their own thing. So the XP people went off and they pitched it a certain way. And the Scrum people went off and pitched it a certain way. And I and Alistair went off and pitched it a certain way. And I think those began to be, you know, there began to be differences in those particular ways. But I would think that, I think that uh, there were a lot of articles that were written. Uh, there were a lot of conferences that people attended. And the other thing that happened is we started to set up some organizations like the Agile Alliance. So the Agile Alliance was established within the year after the Agile Manifesto was written, some of the Agile Manifesto's authors participated in that, some didn't. So the Agile Alliance was established, the Scrum organization was established. So there were both articles, speeches at conferences and organizations that were set up. I was, as I was looking back through some emails, historical emails, I actually found the original, original documents for the Agile Alliance, which I, mm. I set on to the Alliance as part of the his, historical record. But the Agile Alliance budget the first year was $7,500. Right. <laughs> yeah. Says a lot, doesn't it? And and now the conferences, you know, have 2,000 people at them. Right, right. And did you have a certain way of pitching it when it, when it first came out and you must have been up against a lot of naysayers as well. I can't imagine everyone just accepted it and ran with it because it's quite radically different um, than what came before it in, in a lot of ways. 
did you how did you do it did you you've already mentioned you're a storyteller and you don't like a lot of bullet points on slides did you hone a story for people who were unaware of kind of the power and of what agile is yeah and some of it was conceptual in terms of the, the manifesto and some of the things that were behind that one of one of the things that i talked a lot about was the, the analogies to complex adaptive systems uh, several of the manifesto's authors use that as sort of a conceptual or theoretical background for some of the things, because we were trying to talk about things where previously people had thought about things in terms of being prescriptive mm. and, and they could plan ahead with uncertainty of, uh, that was growing in the, in the marketplace or in the world. You no longer could be predictive. You had to, you had to approach planning from a whole different perspective that plans were something that give you a guide, but they weren't something that were fixed in time or space. And, and that, that was a big difference. Let me just give you one small difference that, that in, in terms of the way management had to think. So with a planned approach, with a traditional approach, you did all this planning up front. So you were very confident that this project was gonna work because you'd done all this planning up front. As you got towards the end of the project, you lost confidence, right? <laughs> because all the tests were crashing. You get, weren't getting all the features you wanted. The, day, the deadline was approaching, and so your confidence level went from high to low over the life of the project. Mm. And Agile switched that completely because you do minimal planning in the beginning and realize that the plans are going to evolve over time, but as you get running tested features out of each iteration, you begin to get more confident that, that, that you'll, the project will work out. So it completely changes management's perception of, and, and it really everybody's perception of projects and how they evolve. And so those were the kinds of things that you had to warn people about. Uh, and, and even though you'd warn them, they oftentimes didn't, understand until they've been through it a time or right and again in your book one of the other things i can't help but noticing is the amount of incredible inspirational people that you've worked with in your career not just the 17 but but much wider as well you know you talk about jerry weinberg you talk about tom demarco and kenor and and how these were all really fantastically motivational uh, often great speakers as well. I'm interested to know what, what was it about these guys that made them so magical almost? <laughs> uh, well, it was, it was different for each one. And, and this really evolved as I, as I wrote the book. I didn't start off to talk about the pioneers, but as I began to, to go through my history, I, I realized the impact that these people had had on me. And I realized also that each of these eras were driven by a certain set of people who were sort of stepping out in front uh, and, and risking a lot to bring, bring new ideas to the fore. And I really appreciated a lot of that and the impact that those people had on my, my career. 
if I would say they were articulate, they were thoughtful, they, they were willing to stand up and say, this is what I believe. They were humble in a lot of ways and, and, and very, very smart. I mean, Ken Orr, Tom DeMarco, Larry Constantine. I mean, for example, Larry has retired from software development and information technology to some extent. He's written 16 fiction books. Right. <laughs> uh, and, and so these people were willing to help as mentors. And I think that's something that uh, we need today, too, is, is not yeah. just coaches, but we need mentors. And I've yeah. done a little bit of that, and it's been very re- rewarding. Have you ever tried writing fiction? I sat down a couple of times to think about it, and it just, it wasn't my bag. One of the things I've tried to do with my writing is with each book, I included something new in terms of writing style, because Mm -hmm. I've always wanted what I, my books to be enjoyable to read as well as, as well as informative. And so I've added stories, I've added dialogue, and it's it's kind of come to fruition in this last book, and, and that all of that stuff is there. One of the things you've actually mentioned, which I really like, and I think is applicable to anyone writing stories or even structuring a pitch, is that you don't feel the necessity to do it all in sequential order. You've, I think you mentioned, and tell me more about this, you, you, you jump in to a bit of a chapter that you think, yes, I know there's something good there, so I'm just going to write it down and I'll figure out the order of things afterwards. Yeah, I, I got this from Jerry Weidenberg, and he actually wrote a book on writing. <clears throat> and it's called The Fieldstone Method. And so if you think about a wall, a, a rock wall out in the field, like you see in, in Europe a lot. Hmm. You build the rocks, and then you start fitting the rocks together. And I know people that start writing in the beginning, and they go to the end. And in fact, some publishers want to get that get books that way. They want a chapter one, then they want chapter two, then they yeah. want chapter three. And I couldn't work like that. So it takes a lot of reorganization. This this last book, it, it's interesting. The first book and the last book were the most challenging in terms of organization because I had so much going on that I had to kind of keep tied together. Uh, it was a, it was a real challenge and I ended up reorganizing a number of different times. I think new writers oftentimes don't understand the degree of which you spend time editing, right. rewriting and yeah. throwing away and adding yeah. back uh, it's it's an incredible time sink, but it's it's what makes it it's what turns it from just stuff in, into something that's enjoyable to read, right? And and so yeah, if you look at the evolution of the book, sometimes I I'd work on chapter one and I'd work on chapter four, and by doing that, it gives you an idea of of where you're going or where you've come from, right? In the in the beginning, I even thought about doing it in reverse chronological order, taking the agile stuff first. And I, I realized pretty quickly that that wasn't going to work very well as I tried to write things in different chapters. 
let's talk about the book. So we've been talking sort of around the book. Let's just be clear about this. Tell us um, about the book itself and why did you feel now was the time to write it? Well, it's interesting how it got started. It got started as a family memoir for my grandkids. Right. Uh, that's that's because, you know, COVID had hit. You know, you were sort of locked in. Uh, I had retired. And so I was looking for something to do. And I thought, well, I'll write something that, that I can pass on to my grandkids. And the more I wrote on it, the more I realized that there was probably something more there than that maybe would be useful to people other than just the grandkids. And so it turned into a book and a manuscript. And, and one of the things that I found was that going back and, and looking back through history was, was really a, a, a fun, fun thing to do. What I got the most from, though, was I've talked to people that I hadn't talked to in 10, mm. 20, 30, 40 years. I called people that I hadn't been in contact with. And to a person, they were excited that I called them. Right, right. And, and, and I remember emails saying, guess who? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the best way to write things, really. I mean, you were thinking about your grandkids and then you made all of these reconnections. It was a must have been a very you know, uplifting personal experience. I'm guessing you weren't thinking, what's my next money-making scheme here? It's just pouring your passion into it because of that, right? Yeah, I think so. I think because of that and because I've sort of built my career around certain purposes uh, as opposed to plans, that to, to further the industry of software development, to further the, the technology of software development, and and to find ways of building software better, actually building better software better. And so I kind of molded my life around that and around writing and storytelling and a couple of other things. And I really, as I, as I started writing the last chapter, I thought, well, maybe, maybe in a book like this, I've wrote, wrote about history. Maybe I ought to predict the future. Right. And then I said, no, in, in our uncertain <laughs> environment, trying to predict the future is futile. And so what I came up with is, is that history is it's, it's not the job of history to predict the future, hmm. but to prepare us for it. And so right. one of the things that I hope this book does is it helps people prepare for what comes next, whatever that happens to be. And if they're more agile, more adaptive, more flexible, I think that's going to be an important part of preparing for the future. And I wanted to see kind of where it had come from and, and that software development was impacted by the technology of the time and by the business environment of the time. And so back in the beginning, when I started working and, and you had punch card input and printed paper output and uh, from when you hit the enter key, it was probably 12 or 14 hours before you got any output. <laughs> and, and, and people today can, can't imagine that kind of response. Yeah. Time. Uh, but, it, but we had to respond to that technology and, and that management environment. And so that's what, one of the things that made the, the book a lot of fun is going back and trying to think of not only what happened, but 
Why did it happen? Mm. What were the conditions under which the Agile Manifesto kind of took off? It, it wasn't in isolation. It was it, there were some technology issues and there were some business issues that helped propel the Agile movement. So it wasn't just Agile by itself. And so that was all of those things were what really drove me to write the book. And, uh, and, and, and it's interesting. I think that's what drove the manifesto authors in writing the manifesto. I really believe while every one of us wanted to, you know, go out and make some money off of this thing. That's yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. But, but the heart of it was that we wanted to impact the industry. And we realized, we actually talked about this, that what we wanted to do is try to grow the pie so that everybody participated in that growth yeah. rather than compete amongst ourselves. There's a, there's a word that was in use several years ago that's not much in use now, co-opetition. Right. Where you, either, you cooperate with people and you collaborate with people. And I think the Agile community has done that uh, Maybe better than some others, although other other communities that do that too. Some some of the scientific communities in particular. And let's just talk about the title because we haven't even mentioned it yet. Wild West to Agile. How did you come up with that? The title was an interesting uh, evolution. Mm. And one of the things, for example, in the beginning. I forget. I'd have to go back and look up what the title was, but it, it just was had software development in, in the title, and then a historical memoir. Right. And the marketing people at the publishing house at Pearson didn't want the word memoir in there, right? Because they were concerned about where where booksellers would put it. You know, yeah. What categories Amazon would put it in? If you look at memoirs that are written by people in the information technology field, you can count them on one hand. Right. And so there are not many out there. And so that's both an advantage and a disadvantage because the disadvantage is they don't know where to put the book. Right. So that's one of the reasons that book kind of evolved. Uh, and, and then it revolved into rather than history, sort of a wild west to agile as a, you know, which kind of indicated the different eras. And, and so we were we were working on the title right up to the end, and, and all of this stuff sort of evolves over time. Uh, for for example, in the in the beginning, I had to address the question: Is this going to be more history, or is history going to drive the book, or is my personal experience going to drive the book? Mm. One had to one had to be primary, and in the beginning, it was a history, and it shifted to my personal history. Over, over time. And one of the things I talk to people about is the fact that, you know, I'd written books about stuff before, about project management, about software development, about methodology, agile methodology. So it was written about stuff. And here I was faced with the prospect of writing about me. And that's a daunting prospect when you take yeah. some of yourself and you put it out there in the world for everybody to look at and complain about it. And, and comment on. Uh, and I got some really encouragement from people like Martin Fowler and some of the other reviewers of my book to continue to put more of the personal in it. And so over time, there was more of that personal in it. It became the driving backbone of the book. 
And, and I think it was the right way to go, but it was, a I had some serious anxiety moments over that direction. I mean, the, the nice thing is though, your, your own career and your own history is intrinsically tied, especially, you know, the way you wrote it to how technology advances as well as how kind of, uh, project management and, and methodologies of advance as well. And for me, you know, I work for IBM and you mention IBM quite a lot throughout the book. And it's quite nice for me looking back at some of IBM history as uh, moving through the ages as you were as well. Do you have a, yeah. what do you think about IBM these days? Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I don't get too heavily involved, but one of the best books that I have read recently is Jenny Romney's book, Good Power. Yeah. I just love that book. Yeah. And and in fact, I'm going to write an article and take some of the ideas that I have in my book about what makes for an agile, adaptive leader and take some examples out of her book. Because I, I know people in the agile community are, are always complaining that leadership doesn't get it. Yeah, I think Jenny got it. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Have you seen any good applications of agile outside of uh, software development? Well, I think that um, Gil Broza is a friend of mine who's written a book, and I forget the exact title, about applying agility to anything beyond just software development. And I think some of the ideas about collaboration, about trying to predict the future, about how you respond to uncertainty, about excellence of product, I think some of those ideas go much beyond just software development. It's interesting that I think some people have read the, read the manifesto and they, they take it as a prescription or as a, this is the word, if we, if we talk about code, that means it's for software development. Mm. But I can replace, replace that word code with product and I'm completely uh, okay with that. And, and so I think that there are some of those basic value statements have wider applicability. Now, maybe you need to tweak them if you wanted to use them in other contexts, but it's kind of interesting. Mm. In my project management books, I use different values statements and and talk about those different values, but they all can be derived from the manifesto statement. And I don't have any trouble doing that. Some people want to look at that as, well, think of the interpretation of the U.S. Constitution that we go through that the Supreme Court has to make. They're constitutionalists who basically say, the words are the words, and you know we're not going to try to interpret anything further. And there's some people who say we want to look at the intent that was 300 years ago. Things right. have changed a little bit. Maybe we need to reinterpret it, those words to a modern era. And I think that same kind of thing goes on with the Agile Manifesto. You have strict constructionists, and then you have people who are willing to kind of take those values and extend them into other areas. And, and I think to answer your other question, the question another way, that, that as we have moved from project to projects to product to bigger organizations in IT to digital transformation, the word of agility or adaptability is prevalent in, in the wider organization. And so you have things like the Business, Business Agility Institute that have started up over the last few years that are trying to take this word back into the management ranks. And there's mm-hmm. also a, a group of manager theorists 
who are coming at the ideas of agility from their perspective. So these things are sort of reinforcing each other. Is anyone else, do you feel like others are flying the flag and pushing it further and further forwards as you perhaps take more of a step back? Yeah, I mean, as I look at what's been published and I look at people on on Twitter and LinkedIn and some other social media and what's being said, there are, there are some voices out there that I think are taking it to new levels. And I think that's one of the things that we need to do. Uh, one of the things that I have thought about quite a bit is where does Agile go from here? Right. And how do we return to the kind of the inspiration and passion and excitement that Agile started out with? Uh, and really, I kind of wrote down a statement that says, how do we continue to instill agility and adaptive leadership into our enterprises at all levels? So I think there's still a lot to be done. And I, I see people moving in that direction. And I think it's a very positive direction. Whether, whether they use a, an agile methodology, whether you use Scrum or whether you use, come up with something new called Excalibur. Uh, right. I, I think that some of the agile stuff is still valid. Some of it isn't. And that one of the things that needs to be done is to figure out what of the stuff that's in agile today that expired people 20 years ago needs to stay. Mm. And what is the stuff in agile that's kind of out of date? It needs to change. And I think we're in that, era now of trying to figure out that transition well that's really interesting because perhaps the magic of it was partly because it was such a big contrast it was so new it was it was taking you know you talk about the different phases in your book from wild west through to agile but there's you know there's a lot of very rigid phases in between that and and this was very freeing i think it's why you were called an anarchist can it stay exciting? Can it feel anarchic after 20 years of tweaking, I guess? I think it can. How long has Apple been a leader in the, their brand is all about creativity mm. and innovation and nonconformity and those kinds of things. So all of their products support that brand idea of, of why why Apple? What, what is what is the the basic fundamental beliefs and ideas behind Apple's brand, as opposed to the products, which is really the the implementation of that of that? And so I think the same thing is possible in the agile world. Yes, I, I don't think there's the same kind of tensions that there were twenty years ago, but there are other kinds of tensions. For example. Where is where are we going in this world? I mean, between climate change, geopolitical, economy, uh, COVID, the, the, the fallout from COVID, where are we going and what's going to happen? And I think that's really up in the air. And so we, what we need is more positive responses to that at, at all levels, be it international, uh, national company level. And, and that I think that agility is one of those things that, that can help at all of those levels. And that's taken it a little far, but I think that uh, I've seen a lot of organizations that have uh, applied agility to much more than just software development. And I think that's a positive trend. So mm -hmm. I think, I think it, are there things to get excited about today? Yes, there's things to get really excited about and to try to move to, to, to solve, help solve some of these issues.
Now, one of the things we talked about earlier was how it was uh, interesting that a bunch of techies got together and wrote stuff that was quite people-focused. In the same kind of uh, uh, thought, you, a, a self-proclaimed techie, became VP of Sales and Marketing at one point. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> to, to me, that is a juxtaposition, knowing a lot of marketing people and knowing a lot of techies. How did that happen and how how did you adjust to being sales and marketing guy rather than technical guy? Well, I was it. The job I had at the time was a systems software development manager for a company in Atlanta, Georgia. And we had been using structured these structured techniques from Ken Orr. And it was the job I had at this particular company was probably the best job I'd ever had in terms of what, what I was doing and what I, who I was reporting to and the company itself. And I was really, really enjoying it. And Ken Orr called me up and he said, would you like to be head of sales and marketing? Now this is for a startup. It's for a methodology company. So it was, you know, a lot of training and, and uh, methodology, writing methodology stuff. And so I had a really hard decision to make, but I finally came down to the point where I said, do I want to look back sometime in the future and regret that I didn't take this chance? Mm. And so I commuted from Atlanta to Topeka, Kansas for two and a half years. And how long, how long was that door to door? Five or six hours. Nice. By the time, by the time <laughs> I flew from Atlanta to Kansas City and then drove a car an hour and a half to Topeka. Right. And oftentimes on Monday morning, I beat my staff to work. Wow. That's commitment. <laughs> That's commitment. Oh. Uh, but so I, I was learning, you know, I, I had an MBA or a master's in management. So I had a little bit of marketing training, right. but, but no practical. So I started in the ground zero, but it was a very technical product and I really knew the product. And so I remember talking to one of my competitors in that field a couple of years, a couple of years later. And they were saying I worried them because I was so technically knowledgeable, even though I didn't have the marketing and sales skill. But that but well, one of the things that that did for me is it gave me an opportunity to understand a completely different function in an organization. Mm. And, you know, I'd worked on technical projects before where there'd been a lot of pressure. But I actually was on the West Coast sitting in a conference room by myself with five or six people from the company I was uh, pitching to writing a contract. And, and this was for training in methodology books and some other stuff. And it was a, it was a really sizable contract. And I knew that if I didn't sign that, get that contract signed, we were going to miss payroll a month or so in the future. And so that was a pressure that I'd never had before. And so it, it raised my respect for marketing and salespeople considerably. Mm. And how did you go about pitching the product were you because you were a very technical person and one of the traps that we fall into sometimes is that when we pitch we forget that other people aren't as technical as us and we also forget that we are humans with emotions and and perhaps don't connect on that right level did you did you find that when you were pitching or or, or were people wanting the technical spiel if you like i probably didn't connect with that enough in the beginning I know some of my early presentations were overwhelming. Right. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted people to understand all the details, you know. Yeah. And I, I learned over time that that probably wasn't the best way to go about it. Right. Uh, so, so I did I did learn. And that, 
And that actually started some of my writing when I was actually writing marketing copy. And mm. I, to, to this day, so I was talking to somebody not long ago about how I started off with the book. And I said, the first thing I wrote was the back cover, the marketing pitch, because right. it, it helped me kind of focus in on what the primary goals of the book were. And so I think that time in marketing and sales, although it was only a few years, really helped me understand another part of the business. And you know, I, did, I did everything from cold, cold calling to, man, to putting together booths for conferences Right. to man- managing a couple of salespeople who were at each other's throat constantly, which is, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, ha- I had two territories in the country, East and West, and somehow they couldn't stay in their territories. <laughs> right. You were the referee. <laughs> I was the referee, yeah. uh, but, it, but it was, but it was fun. It was a, it was a great experience. And uh, one of the stories I tell about Ken Orr, is that he was a brilliant guy, very articulate, very knowledgeable, and his mind just went speedily. And he right. would run in my office four or five times a day with a new idea. Right. And so pretty soon my desk was full of new ideas. And so finally I said, Ken, I said, we have to do something about this. I said, I'm going to take all your ideas. I'm going to write them down. But I said, I'm not going to act on one of them unless I get it three times. And he said, fine, that sounds pretty good. We had, a, we had another uh, another manager in the company who didn't do that, who who tried to do, to respond to every idea that Ken had. And right. at the end of the month, he wouldn't have gotten his job done. And Ken would harass him because he hadn't gotten his job done. Right. And then he would say, his response was, but Ken, you gave me all these ideas and I worked on those. Well, it comes back to agile principles, doesn't it? It's the value of the things we don't work on. That's right. And, and I think one of the things that I used to pitch to people was, one of the advantages of Agile was all the stuff you didn't do. Right, exactly. I had a friend of mine who uh, I, I did some work for his company in terms of installing an Agile approach. And then he went out on the conference circuit and was talking about this project they had with the marketing department. And they sat down with him and they said, what do you need? And he said, we need these 100 features. And they said, fine, what are your top three? They said, no, no, we need all 100. And they said, that's fine. We'll get to give you all hundred. Just what are your top three? And we'll work on those first. And then they went back to them the next time. And they said, well, we need all 97 that are left. <laughs> and they went through this thing several, several times and they got to about 20 features that had been installed. And they went back and said, okay, what's the next three? And the marketing guy said, well, he said, we're doing pretty well with what we've got already. And those other things are sort of nice to have, but we'd like to kind of sit on it for a while and make sure that they're ones that we really need before we go ahead with this project. And, and this guy said, if they had done a traditional way of doing projects, they would have done the requirements definition document for whole all hundred of them. Yeah. And then implemented all hundred and 80% of what they've done was low value. So I think that's one of the things that is really important in an agile environment. I oftentimes I did a graph for people and I said, would you rather have a hundred percent of the value for a hundred percent of the cost or 90% of the value for 70% of the cost. And you can make those kind of trade-offs in an agile environment because you're, right. you're basically implementing at the end of every iteration or, or close to iteration to implementing. Uh, and you can't do that with a portfolio project. So there are a lot of things that you don't do or that it's an advantage in agile. 
another one of the things that I find uh, it's another kind of a cult topic, I suppose, which you talk about in your book. And I still have questions after reading your book on this topic because it was only mentioned as a sideline. But Y2K was a huge thing. And I remember, I was quite young at the time, but I remember thinking, right, as the clock strikes midnight, is everything in the world going to break? How involved were you in some of that stuff? And and I seem to remember you were, you know, the origins of it were, were you were somewhat involved in as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I think people don't understand why that why that happened. But back in the day, uh, processing speed or processing cycles and memory were very very expensive. I mean, the the difference between then and now is just astronomical. And so we saved every bit or bite that we could. So in 1965 or 1970, you weren't worried about two year 2000. You right. And so you used the two digit date field. Uh, and I wasn't as involved in Y2K as some of the people that I work closely with, like Ed Jordan. Uh, and, and Ed was doing conferences and talking a lot about Y2K and the potential problems. And funny story about Ed, he he even moved to the kind of a remote town in New Mexico for the event. Right. And <laughs> because he was really scared, he was really, uh, didn't want to be in a big city because he lived in New York. Right. So he wanted to be in a small town and so to see what the impact was. And so his kids played a trick on him. The morning of, of the, the changeover, they ran into his bedroom and said, dad, dad, New Zealand and Australia are offline. <laughs> <laughs> We don't, we can't, there's no contact Love it. <laughs> because they, they crossed the line first. And so he yeah. sprang out of bed and they, they started laughing. That's brilliant. But it, so I don't talk too about it, much about it in the book, but one of the things that I think it, is that it drew an enormous amount of resource out of IT shops during a critical period of time when the transition to the internet and therefore delayed some of the implementations, uh, of, of applications that needed to be done. There was a huge transition during that period of time from the, the, the it was caused by the internet, GUI interfaces, and to some extent, object-oriented programming. And that was the, the move from systems that were oriented towards internal people to systems that were ex- oriented to the customer. Mm. Uh, for, for example, before about 1993 or four or five, when I wanted to buy stock, I get up my paper or newspaper, you know, at Wall Street Journal or whatever. And I would figure out what stock I wanted to buy. And I'd call my broker on the telephone and place the order. He would enter the order into his terminal, get back a response sometime later, call me back and say, we've executed the trade. And then I would put right. a piece of paper in a snail bail. And in the mid nineties, you started having online stock brokers where you could actually log on and buy stock directly without involving the the, uh, the stockbroker. And, and that's the kind of thing that people didn't have any experience with. And so one of the problems with Y2K was that all of the knowledge that they needed for that was basically COBOL, JCL, uh, IMS, DB2. And it was a completely different set of skills that were needed to get through the internet era. So not only did they not have the resources, they didn't have the right resources. And I think that was a big issue that would kind of underlie underlied a lot of stuff 
in the uh, in the agile community. And so what happened is you had companies that grew up where they had a internet or online group and a legacy group, and they threw threw spitballs at each other. You know the the Agile group would say, these are a bunch of dinosaurs. And the dinosaurs would say, yeah, but you guys are just doing the simple systems. You're not really software right. developers. Uh, and that persisted for quite a while. And outside of some of the kind of inspirational people that we've already mentioned, who were your kind of inspirations and, and heroes in the wider world when you were younger? Who, who helped you to become the person that you are? Well, I think to some extent, my mother, for a lot of different reasons, but for in particular, her father was an author during the 1920s and 19 to the 1940s. He wrote 25 some books and, and thousands of articles in, in uh, magazines at the time. And so that was kind of an inspiration for me in terms of the writing. In fact, it was interesting. I wrote an essay for a class when I was a senior in high school. And that essay took third price in the state and got me like a $500 scholarship. In class, I flipped the article. I flipped the assignment because I had right. too many misspelled words. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was my eye as a writer. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think that was it. I think my dad was an engineer. And so I kind of took naturally to the engineering. But I actually had a guy on my paper route that was a, a real mentor. He was an amateur radio operator. And I got to know him pretty well, and he would take me back into his radio room, and we would talk about amateur radio. I became an right. amateur radio operator, and I think that's what encouraged me to get into electrical engineering, which I took as an undergraduate degree. So I think those those are a couple of people. So how how was your mum an inspiration? Well, because she was a writer too, although she didn't get published right. because she was trying to raise a family. So she yeah. she wrote some some wonderful children's stories that I remember the title of, but I, I we can't find them. Uh, uh, family has looked for them for years. Uh, so I was encouraged both by her and by her father in terms of writing. But she encouraged me uh, all along to, in, in the writing part of it. Let's talk about the details of the book. When it, when is it coming out? Where can people buy it? The release date is May 31st from Pearson. And Amazon says it'll be on the shelf in the warehouses at Amazon by July, by June 10th. Uh, I'm hoping for a little better schedule than that. The printer has been a little ahead of schedule on some other books. So I right. hope it's a little bit ahead of schedule on mine. But formerly the, third, the last the 31st of May for the release and uh, it'll be available in it won't be available in many bookstores. I don't think, but it'll be available from all the online sellers, Amazon, Barnes and Noble and other sellers also from um, inform it, which is the Pearson site. It'll be available there at somewhat of a discount discount. So Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've learned Incredible amount from reading the book. We have learned even more from speaking to you as well. Now, I always ask my guests this final question. Do you have any, you know, all of your experience, a lot of young people listening to this podcast, do you have any final words of wisdom for them? What I would say is I mentioned this a little bit earlier is as I look back on my career, I realized that I didn't have a plan. 
And if I had had a plan, it would have gone awry fairly quickly because mm-hmm. things happened that it just sort of miraculously happened. And uh, I couldn't have planned it. So, for example, my work with Cutter Consortium arose because I happened to sit down beside, beside the marketing person at a dinner and we were conversing. And so it's just kind of serendipity. So I didn't have a plan, but I had a purpose that kind of evolved over time. And I, don't, I couldn't have articulated it 30 years ago, but I started to articulate it, particularly as we wrote the manifesto. It, it in part is articulated what my purpose was, why I was trying to do things. And I think for a lot of people just starting out, that it's it's more important to have what is the, what are the things that are important to you? Where would you really like to take your life? What are the purpose behind what you're trying to do? Why is software development or whatever you're doing important to you? And to think about it in those terms rather than I plan to do this job and then that job and then the next job. So that would that would be the the takeaway that I would hope the younger people would take away from it. That's brilliant. Very wise words indeed. Jim, it's been my pleasure and I really wish you the very best for the book release and uh, all of these unknown future adventures <laughs> that might come your way. Thanks a lot, Danny. It's been, it's been great fun. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity and much more.